This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, CIIS faculty Christine Brooks examines how nurturing our social networks increases our health and well-being. This talk was recorded on June 7, 2017, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu podcast. Thanks, Alex, and thank you all for being here. It's really wonderful to be here at CIIS, which is my teaching home, uh, to present the science of friendship, which is something that I don't actually often get to bring here to the campus. So I feel like this is something new for me, too, and I'm really excited to um, bring something that's really personally relevant and personally important, but also, I think, something that um, gets really overlooked, both in research and also just in the way we think about our social lives. Um, so I hope that I'm offering something up that you can take home tonight and immediately put into practice and immediately start thinking about. Um, When I was invited to do this, it was a different time here in this country. It was several months ago and things felt really different. And I'm noticing that as I was preparing for this evening, um, I was really struck by the tension that I've felt and the stress that people seem to be under and the fact that there's... um, a lot of more talk on social media that I've noticed recently around isolation and um, feeling depressed and feeling the struggle of being human. Um, And so today we're talking about connection and so I hope that that's something that we can just bring into the room and hold and that we all can feel even somewhat connected together. Um, On the flip side of that, as I was looking through um, the press today, something that really stood out to me was that President Obama and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau were credited with having a bro hug at a conference um, on Monday. And so their bromance and their BFF political status is something that is just so hot in the media that it struck me as something just worth mentioning tonight as we're talking. So I hope that, you know, this is one for the bros out there who are hugging it out. (laughs) And all science is partial. And so what I'm presenting tonight is part of a conversation that is much, much wider and much broader than we can hope to accomplish in this short amount of time. Um, So I'm offering this up in the spirit of real tenderness and curiosity and the recognition that this is just a slice of something that is so big in our lives. Um, And that I hope that this is more in the um, the end of our time together, our conversation and not just my take on what friendship is all about. Um, I just recently read an anecdote from another friend researcher, and interestingly, there's not a lot of us. And that was what stood out to me. And what she was talking about was that friendship is the least researched and least written about relationship phenomenon we have. Most relational research is focused on romantic relationship, and romantic relationship being dyadic specifically, Um, In San Francisco, I know that there's lots of wonderful relationship that pushes up against that as well. Um, But we look at romantic relationships and familial relationships. And then friendship takes a backseat. And 
the romance and family researchers far, far outnumber the friend researchers at all of these conferences on relationships. And so I just had this image of all these friend researchers in the corner, like kind of huddled in the corner, like we're being overlooked again. So bringing this out is really important because friends truly are a core component of our health and well-being. And so the research that I'm going to present tonight and what I'd like to share with you is really all about that. Um, in my own past five years of immersing myself into the research and doing some writing, and I also consult with tech entrepreneurs who are trying to come up with the ultimate algorithm for how to make friends online. Um, and we'll talk about that later. It's not easy. Um, I just can't believe that we tend to overlook something that is so precious and so life-affirming. And so um, what I've noticed is that in mainstream media, we're starting to see a resurgence of friend research, but there's this huge gap. There was this big swell of research around 1990, 92, and then it went silent in the late 90s. And it's only been recently, and I think it's probably because of social media and our responses to it and our sort of shock around the fact that this has such a huge impact and we really truly don't know what it is that it's doing to each and every one of us and what it's doing to generations as a whole. I think that that's probably why the research has really started to come back around. Um, but one of the conclusions that I have come to in the last five years is that friendship is hard, period. Friendship is hard. It's hard to research friendship. Um, there's some really cool stuff that I'll share with you that's been, that we've been able to discover because of big data because of really having these complex ways of looking at social relationship that we never had before. Um, but it's really hard to research friendship. It is ephemeral, and it changes, and it changes over the lifespan. It's also incredibly hard to predict who will become friends. And again, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, and if you pay attention to the mainstream media and mainstream blogs, including the New York Times and including the Atlantic Monthly, it's virtually impossible, so it's hard, to make and maintain friends after the age of 30. There's this mythos that's starting to happen that says that we don't know how to make friends in adulthood. I'd like to push back against that and say I'm not totally convinced that that's true. The one thing I do know for sure is that I have found it impossible to live without friends. And so that's why I do this research and that's why I keep trying to understand this thing that we call friendship. Um, and we throw that word around so loosely, especially since face the rise of Facebook. Um, and I try to get better at it in my own life. And so we'll talk a little bit about how we might take this home with us tonight, too. So when we talk about friendship, and since this is a school that trains uh, psychologists, um, I would like to lead with the presenting problem, which is loneliness. There is a whole field of study on loneliness that has come to pass. Uh, John Cacioppo from the University of Chicago is one of the lead researchers in loneliness, and he's been doing this research since about the 90s, right when that friendship research was really starting to um, be published. And he talks about loneliness not as the phenomenon of being alone, not as the phenomenon of feeling lonely, but that loneliness is perceived social isolation. Just take that in perceived social isolation. It is your internal perception of feeling isolated, not the, the act of being isolated. Some of you in this room may have that perceived feeling of isolation right now in the moment. 
So it's not about who we're with, it's about what we're experiencing internally. And that's so important to think about because we don't know who's feeling loneliness at any given moment. And I don't know that sometimes we know that we're feeling loneliness in any given moment. So it's an opportunity to really define and check in. Am I, am I perceiving myself as feeling socially isolated? How, how, have, how has this come to pass? And what do I want to do about it? Or what can I do about it? And who do I need to reach out to in order to address this feeling of social isolation? And you'd think in what we have perceived of as this highly independent, highly maverick um, culture of culture, I say, say that word very broadly, of the United States, um, that with this, this independent spirit, that loneliness would you know, really impact us in a sense that, that you know, we'd all be feeling kind of lonely. But what the research actually shows is that people from interdependent cultures, people from interdependent communities actually experience this perception of social isolation much more deeply. And so noticing, too, that we don't know, again, who is feeling socially isolated is something that we need to learn and hold. Um, because loneliness predicts who will die faster. So Cacioppo's research, um, and I'm quoting him here, says that loneliness in 2002 predicts who will die by 2008. So this, this experience of loneliness has health impacts that are profound. Loneliness is also a self-fulfilling prophecy. People who perceive themselves as socially isolated become hypersensitive to social threat. And so therefore, they start acting in a way that is perceived by others as socially isolating. Right, that was a little bit of a mind circle there. So we'll just unpack that, that people who are experiencing themselves as socially isolated start to behave in ways that people then perceive as socially isolating. So they are actually enacting their own isolation when they're trying to be in community and in connection and in, in communication with others. <clears throat> Here's some other really pleasant stats. I promise this is going to get way happier in just a few minutes. Um, the, the demographics of the United States and the lived experience in the United States has changed radically in the last half century. 31 million Americans live in a single-person household. Up to 17% of all American women, and that is including people who, who are in childbearing age, have no children at all and choose to not have children or, for other reasons, have not had children. Um, so 17% of American women are not having kids. 50% of the U.S. population lives in a state other than the state in which they were born. So we are this highly migratory, highly physically isolated population at this point. And so friendship then becomes something that, that people increasingly need to rely on because our traditional social networks are no longer in existence for many, many people. So... What I truly believe is the core human element that we are all wanting is belongingness. And um, Mary Oliver says it in a way that I don't think anybody else has ever said, so I'm just going to quote the very last line of her poem, Wild Geese, where she says, whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. But 
most of us already know how to do this. Most of us already know the experience of belongingness or connection in some way. And so just for 30 seconds, I just want to invite you all to take a moment and take a breath, close your eyes if it feels more comfortable, and just invite into your presence your best friend, a friend, somebody you easily and comfortably call friend. Just invite that person to be here with you just for a moment. And let that person's presence wash over you and into you. And notice what that does for you, physically, emotionally. Notice how it impacts your thinking right here. And now just keep that person with you if it feels comfortable or thank that person for showing up and recognize that we already know this feeling of connection. As Alex said, I started the Science of Friendship Project in 2012. It was a partnership with um, Sean X, who is a social media guru, and he is the partner of a friend. So already we're talking about social connections. And I got this you know, message on LinkedIn saying, hey, you want to be part of a research project about friendship? And I thought, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Because this has always been of interest to me, and I didn't know how to go about doing this on my own because it wasn't my doctoral research. So it was like this whole new project that I got to start. And uh, through the Science of Friendship Project, as I said, we've been consulting with some tech firms and trying to figure all of this out. We've done some research, um, and I'll be unpacking a study that I've been doing since 2004 on best friendship in just a few minutes. But the three areas that were really exploding as we were taking off with this project that seemed like core components of the whole puzzle of what is friendship, how do we do friendship, what are the mechanics of friendship, were interpersonal neurobiology or neuroscience, um, social network research, and also the health and well-being research. And from these three core components, we've really been able to piece together that our friends literally save our lives. Our friends make the fabric of who we are, and that sometimes we forget that, um, again, because we take it for granted, and because it's so under-researched that like, we just don't talk about it. Um, if any of you have ever seen the show Friends or How I Met Your Mother, any of these sitcoms where like the friend is all, there's this way that we think about friends in pop culture, but the mismatch between what that may look like in pop culture and how that actually enacts in people's lives can sometimes even create more of that perceived social isolation. So we get into this conundrum. There's a couple of developmental considerations that are important as well. As I mentioned, this is really under-researched. And so the research that we do have on friendship tends to focus around early childhood into adolescence. So we have really good research about how do we habituate our children into becoming good friends, right? How do we teach kids to play nice? And there's also research for um, looking at friendship in aging populations. So what the research in aging populations has shown is that friends are literally saving people's lives as they age because they're losing those family structures. But that middle area from, say, early adulthood into the aging population, there's like this gap, there's this void in the research where what we see now are just anecdotes in, like I said, the Times, or anecdotes from researchers who have some research but not a lot that says, oh yeah, grown-ups, they're busy and they're lonely. And they're busy and they're lonely because they're busy 
becoming successful at work, and they're busy forming families. And so I'd like to push up against that and challenge friend researchers to fill in those gaps more and more because um, as we just saw from the statistics around what's happening in the United States, it's not actually true that everyone at 22 or 23 is starting on that Ericksonian developmental path of how life is supposed to look. And so more and more we are relying on our friends to create social fabric for us um, in ways that we never have before. And oftentimes we don't know how to do that as groups as well as as individuals. And so this research is also really important as like a learning manual. I don't know if any of you heard about um, adult you adult university. So there's actually two entrepreneurs who have started up this, this organization where they are training millennials how to be grown-ups. Right? Uh, giggle. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, really? But it's because of things like this gap in the research around friendship that we need tools like that, that we really don't know how. There's no life lessons because it's, it doesn't look the way it used to look. So we don't have a learning manual. We don't have instructions for how this is supposed to be done. Um, but millennials are actually teaching us things too, which is really important to notice in that um, millennials are, have completely upended what we think of as romantic dyads, romantic pairing and also romantic relationship. And increasingly people are dating later and later in life. Teenagers often won't even start dating until they're almost out of their teenage years many, many times. That's much more common than it was even 20 years ago. Um, millennials also travel in packs in a way that groups didn't before. So there's group functions and there's group outings and there's group cohabitation in a way that we just really haven't seen. And that's because of this intentional family draw, because those social structures are so needed, especially when people move from city to city or being relocated, or move for a variety of reasons. We're in San Francisco, oftentimes economic. Um, and so those friend networks really can become lifesavers in those situations where they've been upended and have to go somewhere else. So in terms of neuroscience, I'm, I get really curious and really excited about all of this interpersonal neurobiology work, the work of Alan Shore and Daniel Siegel and people who are really talking about the fact that we are literally wired for connection. And Dan Siegel often says, whatever fires together, wires together. So our human interactions, our connections to one another are critical to healthy neurobiology, to a healthy brain. And a healthy brain makes a healthy body. And uh, V.S. Ramachandran down at uh, University of San Diego, um, who has done extensive brain research, this is one of those facts that blew my mind or blew my brain, is that the brain consists of 100 billion neurons. So the number of brain states exceeds the number of elementary particles known in the universe. It's just mind-blowing. And so the more we interact with people, the more those brain states become wired into who we are and impact who we are, and that we have the possibility for countless numbers of them based upon our lived experience with others. I mean, that concept is called neuroplasticity, this fact that we can rewire our brains, that our brains, based upon new experience, are constantly being rewired. Um, but another cool piece of neuroscience that um, has been looked at and, and is exciting in the social media and social network uh, field is based upon the research of Robin Dunbar. Have any of you heard of Dunbar's number? So Dunbar's number is the magic number 150, although he'd argue that it's 150 to 230. 
Um, but what he's arguing is that based upon the size of our neocortex, we have the capacity to be in stable social relationships with just about 150 people at any given time. How many of you have more than 500 friends on Facebook? Come on, it's okay. Or on LinkedIn, right? So how are those connections? So what this number is arguing is that with these new technologies, we may be exceeding our ability to know who we say we know. And just keeping that in mind. And so that's where the notion of having intimates versus acquaintances versus um, other types of friend structures can be really important, knowing who's closest, knowing who's not. And how do we know who's a friend and who's not? So this Dunbar's number idea brings into question these concepts of who do I call friend and who do I want to call friend? Um, in some of the more you know, traditional liter literature around Dunbar's number, um, one of the litmus tests for is somebody a friend or not, is somebody in Dunbar's number or not in Dunbar's number, is would you send that person a greeting around the holidays? So that's one question. Can you remember the name of that person's, if they have one significant other? Do you remember what town that person lives in? That's what stable social connection actually means. These are the people who we remember on the day to day. And then others outside of that are important, and I'm going to demonstrate in just a minute how important they actually are, but they're not part of that 150. They're not part of our stable social network. And people come in and out of that stable social network. It's not like that's a fixed group of people over time, as I know you all know. Um, and so the, the other piece that we, as the Science of Friendship, got really excited about was looking at the research around social networks and we don't mean social media sites and we don't mean social networking. There's actually a whole field of study that Nicholas Christakis and James Fowler have made really popular called social network research. They're not the only ones doing it, they've just kind of brought it into the popular media. Um, but I like their definition of social network, which is that a social network is an organized set of people that consists of two kinds of elements, human beings and the connections between them. And what they're really focusing on is that we are not these individual, you know, humans in skin, but that it's the connections between us that have all the power and that really impact who we are as, as people. Um, and so their research is changing how we think about ourselves in these social structures. How many of you know about Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? It's based on social science research that actually played out in, in that we there are about six degrees of separation between any two given people. Um, it was, that research was done by traditional mail in the 60s and then replicated again with email right around the 2000s. Um, and it's an interesting piece of research because it, it suggests that we're all interconnected. Um, and then, of course, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, a fraternity game was created or a bar game was created called Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, which demonstrates that we are all interconnected with the actor Kevin Bacon. So I hope you all have your own Kevin Bacon six degree story, minus three degrees, I, I'm proud to say. Um, I worked in LA for a little while, that makes it much, much easier. But Kevin Bacon, instead of sort of feeling mocked by this, because he's a pretty cool character, he decided to use the power of six degrees of separation to found his own nonprofit. And he's raised over $5 million from this nonprofit by saying, you use your six degrees of separation to raise money for organizations that you think are important. So he demonstrated the power and capacity of social network as a philanthropic endeavor. 
So kudos to Kevin Bacon for you know taking a bar game and turning it into something that raised money for people. Um, there's another degree concept called the three degrees of influence. And this one is really interesting too in that it demonstrates the transitive properties of social networks. So what we know about social networks and how people make friends is that more often than not, people make friends with friends' friends. So a friend of a friend will become your friend more often than somebody that you never met before will become your friend. That's the transitive property of friendship making. Um, but the three degree of influence rule demonstrates that friends of friends of friends so friends three degrees removed, impact everything in our lives. And this is somebody that you may have never even met in your life. So that's important to think about. A friend of a friend of a friend. It could be somebody that your friend went to college with that you've never met, their friend. That person impacts how much you weigh, how much money you make, whether you smoke or not, and who you vote for. So the social network research has demonstrated that a friend of a friend of a friend has a profound impact on us. It, it also um, is a big predictor of mental health, including depression. So these social network pieces are not just about, um, oh, I know so-and-so, and so-and-so -so knows so-and-so. It's not the Kevin Bacon game that we're looking at. It's really about the fact that our health is impacted by people that we've never even met before. And so keeping that in mind is where making our social, you know, um, contracts with one another can be really, really important. Um, one other piece that's really cool, because this one has to do with um, getting jobs and falling in love, which I know are two things that people often find really important, is that what are called consequential strangers by Blau and Fingerman, who are researchers who've done some research, you know, had sort of the core research around us, consequential strangers are the people that we don't know, but that we bump into all the time. So if your barista isn't your friend, but is somebody that you see four days a week, that's a consequential stranger in your life. Okay, so these are the people that bring novelty into our experience. These are the people that like introduce us to a concept that we may never have even thought about. Consequential strangers and people that are outside of that Dunbar number, who are called our weak ties, those two groups of people help us find a job and help us fall in love much more frequently than our closest people to us. So this is the argument for why we have to keep ourselves open and also connected to people that we may be like, I don't know that person or whatever, I haven't talked to that person in 15 years. Well, that person from 15 years ago has a better shot of getting you a new job than your bestie. So these are important things to keep in mind as we're nurturing our networks and nurturing our relationships, not so much that we need to get something from someone, but to recognize that we are part of this social fabric and that it really does impact everything that we're doing. So in terms of health and well-being, as I mentioned, friendships really keep us alive. Friendships are part of the core of what keep us healthy. Um, Virginia Woolf, who's one of my favorites, once said, some people go to priests, others to poetry, I to my friends. So even though she had a very difficult adulthood. She nonetheless relied on her friends, and those were people that kept her alive for as, as long as they did. Um, in the health and well-being research, it's demonstrated, and we talked earlier about the fact that um, childhood and adolescent research is very big, 
But, and what we know from that research is that kids who have strong friendships in childhood have much higher success rates as adults, both in terms of um, pay structure and success at work, but also in terms of health and well-being in their personal lives. So those strong bonds and learning how to make strong bonds at a young age have a big impact on adulthood, even if those bonds themselves don't translate into adulthood. Um, and we also talked about aging populations. And what we know now is that strong friendships among aging populations um, have in increased function, cognitive function and also reduced depressive symptoms. So keeping friendships strong, even in the midst of changing family structures for people who are aging is very, very important. Um, a 1992 study from Duke discovered that isolated individuals, again, we have to go back to this social perception of isolation, um, were up to three times more likely to die of coronary artery disease five years earlier than those who felt like they had strong relationships. Um, and I hope some of you have seen the Harvard study that was just released recently. There was a 75-year Harvard study that was done on, on men to begin with and then branched out into following up with their children. Um, so it's a study that's been going on, again, for 75 years. And what they discovered about the quote-unquote secret of life is strong relationships keep people alive and keep people healthy. And it's not the, according to this study, what upends some of the earlier research is that it's not the number of friends. And there used to be a high value placed on having lots of friends as the way to, to um, demonstrate that you had strong relationships, but it's the quality of the friendships that matters and the quality of the relationships. So strong bonding um, reduces uh, arterial disease, reduces cortisol levels in the blood, which is a you know an indication that you're experiencing less stress, and increases mental health. So thanks to the Harvard study, they've proven what I think we all know as common sense, but we tend to, again, take for granted and, and forget about. What's unique about friendships, other than romantic relationships, is that we choose our friendships freely. Friendship is voluntary. So that is a whole other structure or way of going about thinking about relationship. And that our relationships create what in the social and emotional intelligence literature is called social capital. So the quality of our friendships as well as the quantity of our friendships are a way in which we then evaluate position in our relationships circles. And Oftentimes in our work circles, people are evaluated through this way as well. So it's a lens in which to look. It's not definitive, but it's something to keep in mind, is that um, people are often evaluated for their social capital. But what's fascinating is that we actually don't really know how people make friends. So that is the mystery of this whole thing. And if you've ever been on a dating site, you've probably seen, you know, when they're pitching you the dating site, they'll say, you know, our algorithm was developed by over 50 years of relationship research. And so there, there, there's actually some pretty good science behind pair bonding, which is what those websites are really dependent on. But we really can't or don't know yet the complexity of figuring out how we make friends. Um, it's, a, it's a mix of things. It's not just one thing only. We, at first, we're hoping that we could figure it out through personality typologies. So there's a personality typology called the Big Five, which is one of the more stable ones that's reliable and used often in research. And the Big Five is the one that has the five components of personality, extroversion, agreeableness, openness, conscientiousness, and neuroticism. 
And so you'd think, okay, well, if people match up on those five qualities, then of course they're going to be friends. Well, not so far. The research actually doesn't demonstrate that very well at all. It does suggest that people who rate high in extroversion tend to make more friends or have the capacity to make more friends. Again, it sounds pretty common sense. But then you'd also think that people who rate high in extroversion have more friends or get chosen as a friend more often. And that's actually not true. People who rate high in agreeableness get picked as a friend. So if you're an agreeable introvert, you may have more friends than your extroverted, less agreeable buddy down the street. Um, and the other piece, the one piece where, where um, similarity in personality trait does make a difference is openness to experience. So think about it. You've got two people who are into bungee jumping. That makes a lot of sense. But the person who is afraid of heights and the bungee jumper, they may go out and hang out, but they may not have the same level of closeness as the two bungee jumpers who share that experience and create solidarity by having repeated experiences that they share and that they like and that they can do more often. So that one actually plays out as you know, something that we can look at and say, okay, we might be able to predict who, who makes friends there. But there's constant exceptions. So we kind of have this mystery of how, how do we make friends? And so that's a gap in the research that I really hope people start to look at and start to ask more questions or try and figure out so that we can write that magical algorithm so we can all make magical friends online. My own research is not so much toward that goal. Um, I started in 2004 a project that I've called the Best Friend Study. Um, and for all of you pop culture people out there who remember the 80s, uh, I want to quote Winona Ryder from Heathers, who said, she's my best friend. God, I hate her. Um, and that's the one of those quotes around how tricky it is in the best friend world and what we mean by best friend. Um, someone who participated in my research said, friends don't know you as deep as a best friend does. A friend is just a friend, but a best friend gets you. And so this study is really about what do we mean by this notion of best friend? Again, earlier I said, we don't even know quite who, what we mean when we call someone a friend anymore. So what do we mean by a best friend? Like all of a sudden it's got this huge weight to it and this importance and this way in which we're thinking, that's my bestie, that's my BFF. Um, and so I just threw a, a study out there to say, well, I don't know. I'm not sure anybody knows, so let's find out. Um, so in 2004, I launched an online study, and it's qualitative research. Uh, so I asked open-ended questions about the qualities of best friendship, uh, experiences shared by best friends, and the rules of best friendship and how they handle conflicts. I was curious about the mechanics of how this happens. Um, over 1,000 people went to the website and looked at the study, and I got 134 responses, which is actually huge when it comes to asking people to answer open-ended questions. Most people are like, oh, I don't know, and you know, turn it off within the first question or two. So I have 134 responses to this piece of research. Um, almost three-quarter of the respondents said that they have four or more close friends. So again, their networks are strong. Um, the research shows that three or more, if we're looking at the numbers, is that magical number where your health improves. So three or more close friends and your health starts to improve. Um, and what really blew my mind, and I have a, a friend of mine who uh, participated in the pilot study to thank for this, was when she took the study, she came back to me and she said, Christine, I can't do your study. And I'm thinking, 
is she friendless? Well, I'm her friend. What's going on? Why can't she do my study? And she said, you start off with the, the, the thought that there's only just one. And I have more than one best friend. So I can't respond to your study because you don't give me an option where I can talk about the multiple best friendships that I have. You want me to put a stake in the ground around a bestie. And that's not how it is for me. And it just blew open the whole study because then I asked the question, you know, how do you think about best friendship? And the, the selections were, there's only one, because for some people, there's only one. I have more than one best friend was another response that was an option. And then I also included, um, I've lost my best friend because there was some loss in my community right around that time too. And I wanted to hear what it was like for people who had lost their best friend as well. Um, and it was pretty profound. I actually got a pretty solid response rate to that. So I hope that that's a contribution out into the research where we can learn how to support people who have experienced that form of loss because we don't look at the loss of a best friend in the same way that we do the loss of a spouse or the loss of a family member. Um, but thanks to Heather, um, almost half of the people in my study reported that they had two or more best friends. So this is an important thing to notice, is that the, the notion of a bestie may not actually be accurate, or the way that we've thought about having one best friend is actually not accurate for many, many people. I'm still analyzing the data, so I can't give you a definitive picture of you know, being the expert on best friendship now. But some of the things that have come out of the research that I think are really interesting is a really definitive split between what it means to be a friend and what it means to be a best friend. Friends are the people that we socialize with, we have common interests with, but they tend to be casual and situational. And those are words specifically that one of my participants used, casual and situational. So they're the people that we interact with for fun. But our best friends are all about intimacy and transparency and non-judgment. And as one of my participants put it, the dark stuff. So these are the people that we can really open our hearts to. And these are the people that see us do things that we'd rather not do over and over because we're human and they love us anyway. And they're the people that we can work through problems with and that we can learn how to do relationship better with. Um, so they are close to us in a way that a lover might be close to us or the way that a family member might be close to us. Uh, many people in my study, and I also use this language as well, talk about these best friendships as intentional family. So these are the chosen family that we surround ourselves with and really learn how to do relationship with. Um, and some of the applications that I hope come out of this research and that I hope to offer in the future, well, first and foremost, it's research on grown-ups. We're finally doing some research on grown-ups, which is really exciting because I really want to debunk, debunk this myth that it's impossible to have friendships in adulthood. Um, there's also this descriptive difference between what it means to be a friend and a best friend so that we can really support people in accepting or practicing or working with that intimacy in their friendships and knowing that like, that's something that we need and it's something that might take some practice and that we might have to learn how to do if we haven't given ourselves permission to be that vulnerable with others uh, in the past. So we can really create some educational tools for how to do this. Again, we need an instruction manual on best friendship because we may not have known that that was something available to us. Um, and it's really a, a celebration of intimacy and connection beyond sexual partnership. Um, and of course, I'm not even touching on the friends with benefit conversation because that's a whole other thing that we don't have time for tonight. Um, so it, it may be sexual partnership too, but 
it's really about celebrating intimacy in a different context than I think we're used to thinking about it. Um, one other piece that I just wanted to touch on is that how to take this out into the world. So these are all great facts, and it's really interesting, and it's like, oh, friendship, it's this big thing. But what do we do with it? What do we do, with, you know, except for I hope each and every one of you goes home and texts your bestie or, you know, hugs somebody tonight or sends an email to somebody. Um, but there's ways in which that we can bring much more intentionality around this concept of friendship into our day-to-day -day lives as a self-development practice, as forms of compassion for ourselves and others. Um, and one piece that I often recommend to clients and that um, I try to practice as much as possible is really what I call befriending the self. Um, Kristen Neff, who is an expert on self-compassion, also talks a lot about using this concept of treating ourselves as we would treat a friend. Think back to that person that you called in a little while ago. And if that person were in crisis, or that person were having a problem, think about how you would support that person. I imagine that there's many of you in here that would be incredibly generous, incredibly kind, have an open ear and be a sounding board and offer up anything that you could to assist that person, to support that person in their own problem. And many of you may also be the same person that when you're experiencing that problem might have that inner critic that's saying, oh, I can't believe I've done this again. I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe I've been such a fool. And we would never say that to a friend. So this practice of really befriending ourselves and using the same tools and techniques that we know, the same ways of being that we know are effective and work, we can turn back onto ourselves and hold that same compassion um, and really use that as a practice so that we can stop being so hard on ourselves because often we're all just coming from good intention <laughs> and often we make mistakes. Um, and then also about befriending others. And that seems so simple, but what we know from this research and what we, of course, read in the press is that maintaining friendship is very challenging. And there's three key components to maintaining friendship. There's three key things that you have to pay attention to. And this is where friendship breaks apart. You have to maintain interest in one another. That sounds super simple, right? How many of you have been on a phone call and been like, uh-huh, yeah, right? And you're answering an email or you're you know, doing something else. It's like that split attention can become insidious. That split attention can truly take us away from maintaining interest in somebody else. And so how do we practice being devotedly interested to the people that we care about? Um, another one is demonstrating affection toward one another, explicit affection. Not, I love you, man, not, you know, cheers, bro, but demonstrating actual affection, showing appreciation, um, you know, even when it's unexpected. These gestures that we do often with people that we are in romantic relationship with, we forget to do for our friends, but they have a huge, profound impact on friend maintenance. Um, and also sustained involvement in the relationship showing up, not canceling, not flaking, not bailing, all of the things that we do because we're super busy, but like really recognizing that the time spent is time toward our own health and well-being. So it's not just, oh, I'm going to hang out with my friends. It's literally recognizing, oh, I'm reducing my own blood pressure by going out and being with my friends. I'm improving my mental health by going out and being with my friends. That to-do list that's never going to end will still be there after I've hung out with my friends. So I prescribe this in a way as truly health maintenance for yourself and for the people that you're making connection with. And then the last thing is 
this research has translated into professional environments as well. And uh, Tom Rath, who is a researcher through Gallup, I'm sure many of you have heard of Gallup, um, he's been doing research on friendships at work for almost a decade now, so he has access to 8 million responses, which is th that big data thing that's so exciting. And what he has found is that even though friendships are often considered a problem at work, like how many of you have actually heard the no fraternizing rule that most workplaces used to have, right? This notion that don't make friends at work, it causes problems. What we know now is that people who have friends at work, people who have at least three close friends at work, are 96% more likely to be extremely satisfied with their own life, not just their job. And they're seven times more likely to stay in that position. So if any of you are bosses or managers, and feel like it's not cool for your employees to have friends, or you have avoided having friends at work because there's this notion that we shouldn't have friends at work, you're creating a system that actually is counterproductive for your own workplace. People who have friends at work stay in that position longer and are happier at work and at home. So it's something to keep in mind, um, is that friendships have an impact in our personal lives, but they also have an impact in what we do in our work lives as well. Um, I'm gonna leave you with just a very quick story because this is kind of my, my motto or maybe even my manifesto. Um, so when I was 12 years old, my mother and I got into this argument. And some of you who argued with your mothers as adolescents may know what I mean by an argument. It was one of those arguments, you know, the knockdown, drag outs, the life is over kind of argument. And the argument ended with her saying that she was worried about what I was going to do with my life, which very existential for a 12-year-old. And um, it was really strange. I immediately shot back and I knew exactly what I was saying. And I said, mom, I just want to be a good friend. And she burst into tears and ran out of the room because she was convinced that I would not do anything with my life because I would be too busy being a good friend. Um, and so the Science of Friendship Project has really brought full circle that declaration that I made to my mom. And we're actually really good friends now. And I did verify this story with her so that I wasn't creating myth. Um, when we were out to lunch uh, a couple years ago, I retold this story and she said, oh yeah, it definitely happened. So, and when she said that to me, I said, <laughs> see, it worked. So I feel really proud about that. Um, and that the science of friendship is really about bringing to light intentional family. And I have had the good fortune of, ha fortune of having intentional family in every place I've ever lived. Um, and I truly believe that friendships are radical collaborations. And they're relationships that we choose and they're voluntary bonds with like-minded and like-hearted people. And it's through our friends that we find ourselves and that we find our place in the world. And they anchor and affirm. And in the best and worst of times, they heal us. And that our friends literally save our lives. So thank you so much. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast.